we're somewhere in the middle, or not even in the middle, closer to that, those eight weeks, but we're going to do our best to get through in 38 weeks the book of Romans, not by looking word for word, but, but, but looking kind of thought for thought at each section in the book of Romans. And we are calling this series Foundations of Faith. Foundations of Faith. And this book is truly the greatest of Paul's letters. It's the greatest of um, the books of Christian theology. It's the most influential letter ever written on the face of the earth. The book of Romans is an absolute treasure. J.I. Packer expresses it well when he says, All roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what may happen. Oh God, may you do that among us. And I'm beginning this way because the study of the book of Romans has been behind almost every major awakening in the Christian faith. So we're praying that as we walk through this book that God would do a major awakening among us. And let me just begin by being honest because even though you're not here, church is still a great place to be honest. I am now 15 years into being the pastor at the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way and this is my first time ever preaching through the book of Romans. And the reason, I must be honest, that I've never preached the book of Romans is because of how intimidating this book is. For there are some really difficult passages that we have to understand and that we have to unpack as we walk through it. And I did feel a little better and then a little more freaked out when I remember the words of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Peter says this, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. So Peter and the early church oftentimes found themselves scratching their heads over parts of Paul's writing. So if and when those moments hit us, may we consider ourselves in, in good company. And Although there might be some confusion in this book and some things that are hard to understand, let me just say this. There is great power in this book. Just think about the way this book has deeply impacted individuals and then the worldwide church since it has been written. Consider this. St. Augustine, one of the church fathers of of many generations gone by, was convicted of his sin after reading from the 13th chapter of Romans. Martin Luther, founder of the Reformation, recovered the doctrine of salvation by faith alone from Romans 1.17. John Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed and transformed while listening to the reading of Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And John Bunyan was so inspired as he studied the great themes of Romans that he wrote the immortal Pilgrim's Progress. So there's no doubt about the power of this book. And my prayer as we walk through this book of the next 38 weeks is that God would, if there are people within the sound of our voice, within the sound of the voice of God's word that don't know him, that God would awaken them. That others of us would be transformed, that our hearts would melt as John Wesley says, or be strangely warm. So there's no doubt about the power of this book, and then there's no doubt about the purpose of this book. The purpose of the book of Romans is to make God boldly and beautifully known, or to make his redemption known. In the words of David Guzik, he says, other New Testament letters 
focus more on the church and its challenges and problems. Romans focuses more on God. God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. So meaning he is the subject around which the entire epistle revolves. But Guzik continues, the word God occurs 153 times in Romans, an average of once every 46 words. This is more frequently than any other New Testament book. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. And our concern to understand what the apostle is saying about righteousness, justification, and the like, we ought not to overlook his tremendous concentration on God. So Romans lifts our gaze from the tyranny of our own selfishness and self-centeredness, and it puts our eyes on the grandeur of a God of kindness, a God of faithfulness, a God of truth, a God of righteousness, a God of glory, and a God of salvation. So let us jump in this morning and hear the beginning of this letter and how it focuses our hearts and minds on the foundation of our faith. So if you're following along with me, you'll see the verses on the screen as well, beginning at Romans 1, 1 through verse 15. And Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from God according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is by my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray. Father, we ask again, speak to us today by your word, through your spirit. As the foundation is laid, God, we pray that we would notice and recognize these foundations in our own hearts and lives. Speak, of God, in Jesus' name, amen. So this letter is written by the Apostle Paul who first made his appearance in the Bible um, as an ambitious Pharisee who was determined to destroy the early church. He was a man out of control when you read Acts 8. But his religious world came crashing down when he met the risen Savior on the road to Damascus, and Paul was never the same. And soon he would travel the world, spreading the gospel. 
And at one point, the year was A.D. 57, while Paul was in Corinth, Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome, even though he had never visited Rome before. For there was a small group of Jesus followers in Rome, their, their number made up of Jews and Gentiles, poor and rich, slaves and free, women and men. And Paul had a humble heart and a sacrificial heart for these people. Paul went from wanting to kill Christ's followers to wanting to encourage them, to have a heart to go to them, regardless of what it might cost him. And this is where we see that the word of God and the gospel of God is is humbling. It's a humbling word. And just think about the difference between Saul in Acts 8 and Paul in Acts 9 and throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Before he met Jesus, Saul was a, a proud man. His namesake came from King Saul, the first king of Israel, who we are told was a head taller than any other person in Israel. And not only was he a head taller physically, he was probably even more um, pridefully above everybody else, how his pride heart led him astray. But now he went by Paul, which in Latin means little, which is fitting because that's exactly how Paul now sees himself as small but loved by a great God. The gospel transformed Saul the mighty into Paul the small. The gospel transformed Paul into a man who was out of control to a man who was absolutely under the control of God. And my prayer is as we walk through this book over the next 38 weeks that we would be humbled and we would be transformed by the power of God's word over our lives and in our lives. So I'm going to lay before us today three truths concerning the foundations of our faith. The first is this, we must know who we are. We must know, brothers and sisters, who we are. In the Greek language, the first seven verses of Romans is basically one long run-on sentence. And on the surface, it appears to be an introduction to Paul. It appears like Paul is saying, this is who I am. But if we look a little deeper, we see that Paul is describing who Christ is or what Christ has done in his life or who he is because of Christ. Just listen again to how Paul introduces himself in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. In verse 6, for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And let me just begin by giving you just a little nugget. In verse 1, Paul calls Jesus Christ Jesus. But in verse 6, he calls him Jesus Christ. And the difference is, one theologian commented that the order of these titles, Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus, is always significant. Because when the Bible refers to him, the second person of the Trinity, as Christ Jesus, it is referring to his eternal nature, that he has always been. But when it refers to him as Jesus Christ, it is referring to his human nature. So, Christ Jesus, eternal nature, Jesus Christ, human nature. In fact, the commentator says this, Christ Jesus testifies to his preexistence, Jesus Christ to his resurrection and exaltation. And Paul's entire introduction is based on the fact that he belongs to Jesus. And in belonging to Christ, there are a few truths that were true of him that are also true of us. 
Just think about the three descriptive words that Paul uses in verse 1. Servant, apostle, and set apart. And let's take those three descriptions and look at how they relate to us. So the first word, servant. And understand this, brothers and sisters, we are servants of Jesus Christ. We're servants of Jesus Christ. So Paul could have introduced himself as Paul, the eminent theologian, the master of the Old Testament scriptures, the frontline warrior, the man who was brilliant and intellect, but instead he chooses the word doulos, which means slave. So Paul was a servant of Christ, but even more than that, he was a slave of Christ. And that might not sound like a big deal to us, but when you are in Rome in the first century, this is a shocking proclamation. In first century Rome, there were millions of slaves. They were not servants. They were property. They belonged to an owner. They were slaves. And just think about <clears throat> excuse me, the depths of this. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. For a citizen living in Rome during this time, you immediately think about a poor Jewish carpenter named Jesus who was sentenced to die by a Roman governor named Pilate. And his execution, like all of them, was successful. And now Paul comes on the scene writing a letter declaring that this poor Jewish carpenter that died a shameful death was alive and was his master. So Paul is saying, Jesus owns me. Jesus rules me. Would that not be a weird declaration? But let me just say this, brothers and sisters. That's our declaration. Jesus owns you. He owns me. If we are his child, if we are a child of God, we are his. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you have been bought at a price, the precious blood of Christ. And Jesus says, or excuse me, Paul says, you are not your own. You're not your own. Brothers and sisters, we are servants of Jesus Christ. But then think about the second word, apostle. And what does that mean for us is that we are sent out by Jesus Christ. We are sent out ones. And I want to be very careful here because the, the word apostle does literally mean one who is sent out. But in the New Testament, there are two primary uses of this word. The first is specifically referring to apostles of Christ, meaning those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ and then those who were called by Christ to lay the foundation of the church. So when Paul uses the word apostle, most of the time he is referring to himself and the 12 apostles minus Judas plus Matthias. All of them had seen the resurrected resurrected Christ, all of them had been called um, by the resurrected Christ. So the majority of the time the word apostle is used, it's referring to these 13 guys. But the second use of this word is a generic term, which refers to others who were sent out to be ambassadors or messengers for Christ. This refers to a broader group of believers. This is a picture of Acts 1-8, where Jesus says, you will be you will see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The, the Spirit of God and every believer is given to us so that we may be witnesses. Therefore, we don't have to sit around waiting for a prompting to share the gospel. The reason we have the Spirit of God in us <clears throat> is to share the gospel. I was thinking this morning, today would have been my father's 82nd birthday. 
when I think about his life, even now, I think about a man who loved people, who was determined to tell anyone he came in contact with about Jesus. Sometimes as children, myself and Kelly, it was embarrassing. Some of the times where, where dad would just up and just completely change the whole conversation of things. And, and at the time as a child, it seemed embarrassing. But now looking back, it was a man who was filled with the Spirit of God who wanted whoever he encountered to know what he knew. And not just what he knew, to, to know who he knew. And I pray that we would see, that first of all, myself, I would see myself in that way. That I've been given the Spirit of God and that I want people to know who I know. And I pray the same for all of us. Think about this. So the office of the apostle, those who have seen Christ and been called by Christ to build the foundation of the church, the office of apostle is closed. But the calling of the apostle to go, to go and to proclaim the gospel, to be ambassadors, to be messengers, that, brothers and sisters, is wide open. And that is what God is calling us to do. We are sent out by Jesus Christ. And in that last word, or last descriptive word, set apart, that Paul uses in verse 1, we are, brothers and sisters, set apart for Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, many things and people were divinely set apart by God for his purposes. The tabernacle, the temple, the temple furnishings, especially the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies were set apart to God. The tribe of Levi was set apart for the priesthood. The entire nation of Israel was set apart by God as his child, as his son. The tithes and offerings of the people, which consisted of money and other gifts, were set apart unto God. So frequently in the Old Testament, to be set apart was to be made holy and righteous. And when we get to the New Testament, we see that we, the children of God, are the set apart ones. So please hear this. God's only true holy things on the earth today are his people. God has set us apart for his mission. I want to be very careful because many believers still have an Old Testament view of their calling in Christ. And what I mean by that is this. The best way to advance the gospel is no longer to invite people into a building that we call the church for them to see the glory of God. The best way for us to take the gospel or advance the gospel is for the church to invade the world with the glory of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying don't invite people to church. By all means, please invite people to church. In fact, the more, the more church planners that I talk to who have growing churches, churches that are growing, and I ask them, hey, what, what, do, you, what do you see as the secret of, of your growing? Here's what they always say. Our people are excited about their church. Brothers and sisters, when we get excited about our church and invite other people, they'll want to come be a part of what God is doing. So by all means, invite people to church, but understand we're not inviting them into a building. And then something magical happens here. We're inviting them ultimately into a relationship with God. If you're listening today and maybe you're not a Christian, let me just make it very clear to you. We want to convert you. We, we want you to be saved. I'm not going to beat around the bush and act like we don't. That is our ultimate goal. If you don't know Christ, we want you to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. But we have to understand who we are in Christ. We are slaves. We're servants of Christ. We're sent out into this world by Christ. 
And we are set apart for him. Do you know who you are in Christ? Oh, I pray that you do. We must know who we are. But then secondly, the second truth, the second foundation, we must know what we believe. We must know what we believe. And think about it. Why was Paul willing to travel around the world to places he wasn't welcome in, to people he had never met? Why was he willing to endure unspeakable hardships to get this message across? And ultimately, his willingness came from his surrender to the person of Jesus Christ. For you see, God did not choose a man who was on earth and make that man his son. Instead, God chose to make his eternal one and only son a man. And all that Paul unpacks at the beginning of this letter is related to belief in that man, Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 2. It says, Paul writing says, He promised, God promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son. So Paul is saying all the, pro- all the promises of the prophets pointed to Jesus according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul clearly had a desire to show Roman believers how every single book of the Bible written by more than 30 authors in a span of over 1,500 years, how all of it pointed to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus is on every page of this book. He is the center. He is the point of this book. Or put it a different way, Paul longed to proclaim, as he did in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. Paul knew, as we know today, that so much of the Messiah was revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament answers questions such as, who would Jesus' mother be? Isaiah 7 says his mother would be a virgin. Of what house was he to be? 2 Samuel tells us of the house of David. Where would he be born? The book of Micah tells us in Bethlehem. What name would he be given? Isaiah 7 again tells us Emmanuel. What death would be his? Isaiah 53 tells us the cross. Piercing the body without breaking his bones. And then upon death, would his body be abandoned to Sheol? Would his body see corruption? And according to Psalm 16.10, absolutely not. So Paul's task was rooted as far back in the Garden of Eden to the patriots, to the prophets. It had always been about Jesus. Think of it like this. Confucianism and Buddhism are teachings and principles of Confucius and Buddha, which represent the essence of the religion rather than the teacher who taught or the fact of the teacher's life and death. Even in Islam, the towering figure of Muhammad finds its paramount importance in the revelation which was given to mankind through him. But by contrast, listen, Christianity is Christ. Jesus Christ is Christianity, not just his teachings, not just his work, him. He is Christianity. John Stott put it this way, the person and work of Christ is the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he said he had come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole structure will collapse. And listen to what John Stott says, 
Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. Christ is the center of Christianity. Everything else is just circumference. And the key event, according to Paul, that demonstrated who Jesus really is, is his resurrection from the dead. The empty tomb forever separates Jesus Christ from all other religious leaders. Or as we always say, the tomb was empty, brothers and sisters, so that we don't have to be. The tomb was empty so that we don't have to be. During the years following the French Revolution, there was a great turning away from the Christian faith. A certain man named Le Revelay concocted a new religion which he thought was far superior to Christianity. But he had trouble convincing others to follow him. Seeking help, he went to the great diplomat, Charles de Talleyrand, for advice. Talleyrand's advice was simple. He said, to ensure success for your new religion, all you have to do is have yourself crucified and then rise from the dead three days later. That's all you have to do. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection changes everything. And Christianity did not begin with people who believed something. It began with people who saw something. And what they saw was the resurrected Savior. They saw Jesus Christ rise from the dead. If Christ has not risen from the dead, and the declaration um, today that we declare is that he has, if he hasn't, then our faith is futile. But if he has, then nothing can stay the same. In fact, if you're here today and you're kind of not a Christian and you've been turned off by many different things and maybe you have all kind of different ideas of, of why you're not a Christian, let me just say this. Start with the resurrection. Start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it happened, then nothing else can be the same. If it happened, you can't find your way around enough excuses to justify not believing in him and not surrendering your life to him. Before we move on to the last truth, let, let me just lay before you one, one more thing. Our belief in Christ, and so when we think about and say that we must know what we believe, our belief in Christ must produce something. And what it must produce is this, it must produce obedience. Look at verse 5, it says this, verse 5 says, all of this is to bring about the obedience of faith. So brothers and sisters, faith is supposed to lead to obedience. Faith apart from obedience is not faith. In fact, this is where part, as I was studying Romans, this is where part of my word for the year came from, that faith must be or have obedience as its fruit. Walk worthy of the calling by what you know is in balance with what you do, your obedience to the word of God. So we must know what we believe, especially when it comes to Jesus Christ, our Savior. But that leads us to the last Foundation. So we must know who we are. We must know what we believe. And then third, we must know to what we belong. We must know to what we belong. Look at verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you, writes Paul, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And then in verse 15, Paul ends this way. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And that's kind of weird because Paul is writing to Christians. And Paul says to Christians, I want to preach the gospel to you. And sometimes we go, well, why would Paul want to preach the gospel to Christians? Because we view the gospel as what you preach to people who don't know Jesus. 
One pastor says this, many people view the gospel as a diving board by which you enter into the pool of salvation. But the reality of scripture tells us that not only is the gospel the diving board, the gospel is the pool. And the beautiful thing about the pool of the gospel is we can go down as far as possible and never reach the bottom. It's the beauty of the gospel. We don't just preach the gospel to unbelievers, we preach it to each other. We need the gospel. We need to be reminded every day what Christ has done for us. But I want to also just focus on what we belong to. Have you ever tried to do a, a job for two people all by yourself? It's not an easy feat. Depending on the exact nature of the, the task, it might even be impossible. The fact is that life was never meant for us to live alone. Even if we happen to be physically capable enough to handle most of it, whether it be relationally or emotionally, we're going to eventually run into trouble. Life is just better with company. And this is what Paul captures here in this letter. He had never been to Rome before, but oh, how he longed to be able to go to them and to see these believers who were so young in their faith, and he longed to pour into them, and he longed to learn from them. They were pursuing their relationship with Christ in a context for which it'd be difficult for even a word to, to even cover it. Think about this. Paul was writing to the, the believers in Romans three years after this guy named Nero took over. Nero would not make life easy for Roman believers. and Eventually would not make life easy for Paul. And the picture is Paul, given the trials that he had faced, he wanted to encourage these believers, but he wanted to be encouraged by their stories. Listen, when it comes to our journey after Jesus, having someone else to go with us, to journey with us, makes all the difference. So I wonder, who's journeying along with you? I'm not talking about just in life. I'm talking about in your faith. Who is taking the faith journey with you? Who do you have that you are sharing your journey of faith with? Because here's the thing, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. You're not supposed to do it on your own. Even the Lone Ranger, we talk about Lone Ranger Christians, even the Lone Ranger had a companion. We're not supposed to do this by ourselves. If any, Think about this, if any believer would have been strong enough to stand alone, would it not have been the Apostle Paul? And yet the Apostle Paul says here, I need to fellowship with you. I need to have mutual encouragement. I need to pour into you and have you pour into me. Listen, while I can learn, I can pray, I can even worship by myself, I'm so thankful for other, other individuals who encourage me and share their lives with me and allow me to share my life with them. Listen, on our own, we'll, we're going to face trials. On our own, we're going to face temptations that will drag us down. Yet when we have other brothers and sisters walking alongside of us, we have someone there who's able to share the load with us. They can encourage us, and we're able to encourage them so that trials become bearable, temptations become overcomable, things that wouldn't happen otherwise. Brothers and sisters, we belong to something amazing. We belong to a community. We belong to a community. And let, let me just say this. God is just, right now, I don't know who this is for, but I, I believe this is for somebody. There's somebody who's listening right now that you feel like you're drowning. 
you feel like you are being overcome by trials, by difficulties, by temptations, and you feel like you're alone. Let me encourage you to do something that's not easy. To lay down your pride and reach out to brothers and sisters and reach out to them and say, I need help. I need help. It's not an easy thing to do. But it's, when you do it, it's freeing. It frees you. Brothers and sisters, I pray that if that's you today, do it. I can, I can assure you, when you stand before God one day, God's not going to say, hey, you did it all on your own. I'm proud of you. We were never intended to do it on our own. We were never intended to carry the burdens all by ourselves. So in closing, I want to place three challenges before all of us this week in light of what we've seen this morning. The first challenge is this. Ponder deeply who you are in Christ and what you have been set apart to do. I believe that we are set apart. We're set apart by God for a task. All of us. So ponder deeply what Christ has set you apart to do. What's your purpose? Why are you here? Listen, you're not here just to take up space. You're here because Christ has a task for you. Give purposeful thought in finding out what that is and then accomplishing that task by His help alone. Secondly, think deeply about what you believe, especially when it comes to the person of Christ. But don't just think about what you believe. Think about has your faith produced obedience? So think about that. Has what you believed led to obedience in your life? Listen, if it's not obedience, if, if our faith doesn't lead to obedience, it was never faith in the first place. May our faith in what we know and what we believe lead us to obey, lead us to do what we've been set apart to do. And then third, celebrate what you belong to. We belong to a community. And we have something to give to others. We have something to receive from others. So I want to challenge you, when you think about community, I want to challenge you to do, do this this week. Reach out and touch three lives this week. Pray and ask God to lay three people, just three people that are a part of the body of Christ upon your mind and heart. And then try to think about how God might use you to reach out and to impact, to touch their lives, to encourage them this week. It could be a phone call. It could be a text. It could be an email. It could be something else, a way of encouragement, just to encourage brothers and sisters. And something happens when we encourage other people, brothers and sisters, we're encouraged ourselves. It's the way God set it up. So I pray today that we would come to understand who we are. We're His. We would come to understand what we believe, and it's about him. And we would come to understand what it is that we belong to, his body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the beginning of this series. God, do a work, transform, humble us. God, unite us together over the next 38 weeks in a way that brings you glory and honor. Father, I pray for anyone today who's listening that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they would understand who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. They would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. I pray for others, Lord, that are within the body of Christ, but really outside the body. 
They're living by themselves. They're living alone. They're living individual walks of faith, and they're drowning. They're walking through difficulty, and they feel like they're about to go under. Lord, humble them and help them to reach out to other brothers and sisters and say, help. Lord, help us today to throughout this week, to reach out to other brothers and sisters. Lord, we need each other. We need each other. God, you made it that way. Be glorified, God, through our dependence on you, but also through our dependence on one another. Thank you so much for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm living the blessing. (laughs) Now I'm coughing. I pray that it has been good to be in this place, or not in your place of worship today as we have joined together. I pray that we would take the truths of what we have seen and experienced and uh, see them multiplied in our lives this week. And I cannot wait to see what the next 37 weeks is going to look like um, in our, our lives. Love you guys. Awesome, man. (laughs) I I looked up and I was like, where's he at? (coughs) Uh, Now you got me.